you're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, it's all about AI, emerging technologies and China. To kick off the episode, Dr. Alex Caples speaks to Simeon Gilding about his Aspie report, De-Risking Authoritarian AI. They discuss the risks of Chinese AI-enabled technologies, including through data theft, disruption and denial of services and how nations should approach the regulation of AI. Hello everybody, I'm Alexandra Caples, the Director of Cybertech and Security here at ASPI, and I'm joined by Simeon Gilding. Simeon is the author of a new ASPI report, De-Risking Authoritarian AI, a balanced approach to protecting our digital ecosystems. He's also a senior fellow at ASPI and has previously held senior positions across the Australian national security community, including a stint as the Deputy Director General at the Australian Signals Directorate, responsible for signals intelligence and offensive cyber operations. Welcome, Simeon. Good to be here, Alex. So, Simeon, AI at the moment is everywhere. Lots of discussions around the future of AI, uh, the rapid development of generative AI particularly, ChatGPT and a series of other tools and platforms, and particularly, I guess, national efforts to adapt and regulate AI and this idea that it's the kind of tech that is no longer value-free, it's value-laden. We've seen Minister Husick's current consultation round on the safe and responsible use of AI and really looking at how we best manage both the benefits and the risks that this kind of new powerful technology might afford, essentially. I might start by going back in time a little bit, if that's, if that's OK, um, because I think this sort of leads into the current conversation in ways that are a little bit interesting. You provided advice to the Turnbull government on security concerns with Chinese 5G equipment in our telcos when you were at ASD. And I I suppose to say that this report that you've put out now about de-risking authoritarian AI also speaks to some of the risks that might be involved uh, in Chinese equipment and Chinese supply chains associated with AI. Why are you concerned about Chinese technology which uses AI? What's the specific concern about AI in relation to China? Well, as you said, a few years ago I wrote an ASPE piece on uh, making the case for banning Chinese vendors from 5G, uh, supplying 5G to telecommunications networks, and that seemed like a no-brainer at the time, still does. Telecommunications are the digital spines that run down the backbone of democracies. They're strategic points of vulnerability for all our digital ecosystems. And my underlying argument at that point was that the Chinese state had the capability to compel its 5G vendors to take direction from its security services. They had the opportunity for mischief from these vendors because they were coming to dominate uh, equipment for 5G networks. And the, they had a malign intent to use vendors for mischief because, uh, you know, across a whole lot of domains, but sticking to the cyber domain, you'd have to say that for the past decade, China has been the biggest cyber threat to our national security both in Australia and, that, and, and our allies as well. So if you use Chinese 5G vendors in your networks, those telcos are one update away from being owned by the Chinese security services and therefore our societies are wide open. And, that, and that's not, I suppose, that's not just you know, your assessment that actually is a point of fact in the sense that we, we know that the Chinese legislation around um, the use of intelligence and perhaps the being able to co-opt Chinese companies into... Yeah, there's a, there's a whole raft of legislation which is continually being um, strengthened. The, the centrepiece, I guess, is the 2016-17 National Intelligence Law that compels uh, Chinese companies to 
take direction from the Chinese security services, but there's a whole range of laws and they're also no less informal but no less co- coercive measures such as, you know, company owners disappearing for months and on end and uh, golden shares held by the Chinese government in these companies, a bunch of measures. So, yeah, I mean, I think the thing, the point to make there really being that that's, that, that uh, ecosystem is quite different than, than the one that we would be used to seeing in Australia. So that that essentially was your view on 5G and that really got you thinking, I suppose, about other classes of, of tech uh, and AI. So, yeah, I started thinking about, well, 5G is central, but are there any other kinds of Chinese tech that we need to be worried about? And that got me focusing on AI-enabled technology. It's not the glamorous artificial uh, general intelligence AGI that we're being told in a singularity we'll see that machines take over the world. It's really about the risks we face today, not in the future, but the risks we face today from the more prosaic AI-enabled technologies made in China, things like ship-to-shore cranes, security screening equipment at ports and airports, digital systems that control railways, and just general systems that regulate industrial processes and utilities like electrical grids. And a lot of these legacy technologies are increasingly underpinned by AI because it supercharges these products and services. It makes companies more competitive. And the internet makes AI possible because we can now uh, shift data backwards and forwards uh, across networks, which is, of course, what AI needs. But there's a risk in lots of data going back to base in China where decisions can be made, uh, will be made non-transparently, and that raises a heightened potential for data theft, disruption and denial of services uh, from these products. And so the capability, opportunity and intent dynamic that applied to 5G uh, equally applies to this class of Chinese AI-enabled products and services. So this, is, this isn't Skynet, this is essentially the, the kind of thing that's here and now, and that's that kind of Gates law idea really of being able to, or suggesting that uh, we always underestimate what technology can do now and overestimate what it can do in the future. We, we're thinking about generative AI, but actually we need to be thinking about the legacy systems that are already in the throes of being augmented. Yeah. I mean, in a single generation, China's now appear a competitor with the US on all forms of AI, including cutting edge. And there's a real opportunity for their vendors because, uh, for their government really, because China's tech companies are now exporting cheap AI-enabled technology to the world. And it's supported by the government through initiatives such as the Digital Silk Road and lots of smart city initiatives and advocacy and technical standard setting bodies for technical standards where China is Chinese companies are particularly competitive. And in terms of internet governance, there in international bodies, the Chinese government is advocating a model of internet governance that is simpatico with an authoritarian model where the government controls the internet. So the core issue is this. Vendors of Chinese AI-enabled products and services services may have honourable intentions but they're also subject to the direction of Chinese security authorities. Okay, so how then does that threat play out? As in, I don't think I would disagree, but just, just in terms of understanding how that threat plays out in cyberspace and our digital networks. Yeah, well, you, you're, the vector for the harm is cyberspace, our digital networks. 
And this isn't about hacking defended networks from the outside, so taking over some kind of functionality in Microsoft, for example. But it's about legitimate actions by Chinese companies on their networks in our ecosystems. That, and that action might be triggered remotely or it might be triggered by service staff updating system software. I'd, I'd, li I'd like to look at it like this. The hardest thing for hackers, be they criminals or governments, is getting initial access to a target system. But if you can use, if you can compel your vendors who have a uh, deep market penetration to use their networks to get onto devices and services, then that kind of solves, goes a long way to solving that problem. It's not about, and one other thing I'll say, Alex, it's not about having proof of a smoking gun. The concern really is a loaded gun within our digital ecosystems. And the question we have to ask is how much risk are we willing to bear against the background of, of growing strategic tensions with China? So this is essentially looking at, well, two things really, I suppose. One is the, the, the kind of potential here, but equally whether you would know whether activity had taken place. So there's probably some, it's a bit of a two-parter that. Can you, could you give us, perhaps me an example of the kind of thing that we should be concerned about? Well, I use the example of a Chinese uh, company called ZPMC that makes, uh, that controls 70% of the global market for ship-to-shore cranes, according to an article I recently read. The company uses real-time data, machine learning and advanced analytics at its global monitoring hub in Shanghai to, uh, for predictive maintenance and to improve crane operations. Uh, in 2017, the company's then chairman explained that we used to sell hardware and now we're selling software and service. So that's my, the idea I mentioned before, that a crane used to be a crane. Now a crane is a, uh, is a software device um, enhanced by AI uh, capabilities. And according to the Wall Street Journal, the cranes reportedly contain sophisticated sensors that can register and track the provenance and destination of containers. And reportedly there's concern in the US that China could capture information about material being shipped in or out of the country to support US military operations abroad. Interesting. And I think really points to this idea that we are now talking about apps. It's all about the app. It's not necessarily about these things are no longer dumb machines. So if they're not dumb machines, where does that information live? Who has access to that information? Who potentially has control over that information? Uh, and again, whether we would know. So how do we approach that though? As, as a, uh, I think I, I spoke at the top of this podcast about the, the struggle that nations and governments are having to really understand how to regulate AI, generative AI being the next kind of level, but even kind of in its current form. How, how are nations approaching AI regulation? Well, as I went down this rabbit hole, Alex, I, I noticed that there were two broad kinds of risks from AI. There's the risk to fundamental rights of citizens, and that's things like breaches of privacy, algorithmic bias that discriminates against minorities or women, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and then the other kind of risk from AI is to the security of digital ecosystems by hostile authoritarian governments that can control critical infrastructure and services. And my report examines the two leading exemplars of these approaches. The EU has a draft AI Act which defines the threats posed by AI in terms of risk to individual rights, ethics and equality. Uh, 
and it proposes a country agnostic regulatory framework to address those issues, whether that you know AI gear comes from the US or China or anywhere else. And there's something to admire about the EU framework. It puts arms around the totality of AI technology to identify the subtypes that democracies should be worried about. And it divides AI systems into four categories and proposes banning and regulating the highest risk uh, categories of AI in the top, the top two of the four categories. That said, in their version of the Act, there's inside baseball, there's three versions, one done by the Commission, the bureaucrats, one done by the Council of Ministers, they're the member states, and one version done by the EU Parliament, and they've got to be reconciled. They're hoping to do that by the end of the year. But the EU version of that, the parliamentarians kind of lose their minds about generative AI and throw out their risk-based approach and say, all generative AI is bad and we need to ban it or regulate it. I guess the other thing about the EU uh, uh, Act, where it's going, is that it, it, it involves a very ornate compliance burden. It reads like a musical notation system written by people who don't like music. It, uh, critics say it, it deters investment in AI. There are large compliance costs, particularly for small and medium-sized enterprises. It'll slow down digitalization of the European economy. And, and I think the big one is that it will lead to a brain drain of AI entrepreneurs who go to jurisdictions where there are fewer hurdles to the development of generative AI. And the Stanford Institute published a paper a short while ago saying that many providers of generative AI, like OpenAI, Google and Meta, don't comply with the European Parliament's proposed requirements. And so that's going to be a big problem for them. Is that something that, while a problem for the EU, could be a boon potentially to to those who are taking perhaps more of a risk-based approach? I think so, but it's, uh, it's not good for Europe. I think there's a deeper problem with the AI Act, from my point of view, is designed to protect the fundamental rights of individual citizens, not the digital security of the digital ecosystem as a whole. Democracies need to address both these challenges, but they're different kinds of risks, one's to individuals and one's to the security of the collective, and they require different approaches. The EU's regulation relies on companies caring about reputational damage and stiff financial sanctions, but would a Chinese company under pressure from its security services care about this? They would have no choice but to comply. So they might meet the compliance standards that are very rigorous, but if they come under pressure from another source, then they'll have to comply. That's the very much the rights-based approach that's in keeping with what the EU's been doing with GDPR and other kind of privacy, individually-based uh, regulations. I, I guess the flip side of that is is the US and, and as, as ever, Australia probably looks to sit somewhere in the middle. But if you can speak to that other end of the spectrum, that would be fantastic. The Biden administration uh, is taking a much more active uh, interest in EU-type AI concerns. But their main focus and where they put their money has been on countering authoritarian AI-enabled technology from China. And they see China's growing AI capability as an economic and national security threat, but also a threat to democracy and human rights. And so they've been rolling out a wide-ranging suite of measures to retard China's advanced computing, which, as you know, is essential for leading-edge AI, but also to manage the threat of Chinese AI technology already present in the US markets. In March, a strongly bipartisan Restrict Act was introduced into the US Senate 
and that proposes to take to direct the Department of Commerce to identify and mitigate foreign threats to ICT products and services. And whilst the initial focus has been on TikTok, it's very open-ended. Well, that is, I mean, I think there's been conversations as well around this idea of whack-a-mole and, you know, TikTok, yes, as a problem, but potentially needing to look at that a little bit more systemically rather than sort of platform by platform, if that makes sense. So what then are realistic options? Uh, we've heard about decoupling um, economies and or parts of economies that that language seems to have softened over time to de-risking, perhaps as being a more credible and more achievable way forward. What what do you think are the options as far as perhaps how we tackle this risk? Going back to what I said about banning 5G equipment from China from our networks, the challenge from Chinese AI-enabled technology is more subtle and complex. 5G was a really easy line to draw in the sand because mm. the costs were bounded it's a small group of technologies. It's a small group of companies that, have been, that are affected. But AI is a constellation of technologies and techniques embedded in thousands of applications, products and services. And so if you ban all of this Chinese AI-enabled technology, it's going to be extremely costly and disruptive. And let's remember that Chinese technology helps businesses innovate. It's cheap. It's uh, effective. It helps them build better products. It helps them offer cheaper services and it helps researchers with scientific breakthroughs. So the policy goal here is to prudently take steps to de-risk our digital ecosystems, but not to decouple from China. The task is to identify where on the spectrum between national security threat and moral panic each of these products sits and then pick the fights that matter. Mm. And that, that always is, as ever, the challenge, where, you, where your risk threshold sit. We know that those potentially change over time um, and certainly between governments and so on, but equally how you bound this technology, as you say, how you identify what even sits within that that bucket. But your paper does speak to, I, I suppose, a process, a, a proposed way forward as far as identifying the highest risks and how we might triage that. So, if Yeah, I came up with a, a three-step framework to identify, triage and manage the riskiest products and services. Step one is, you know, audit, identify the AI systems whose purpose and functionality you really worry about the most. And you have to ask yourself questions like, how critical are these products to essential services? Public health, safety, democratic processes, open markets, freedom of, of uh, speech and the rule of law. And what, how dependent are we on, on, on these products? Are there redundancy arrangements if that particular Chinese product is compromised or unavailable? And a good place to start looking is where Chinese hacking has been detected. My report mentions that in late May, Microsoft uh, detected a Chinese actor in the US communications, manufacturing, utility, transportation, maritime, government, IT and education sectors, including on the island, island of Guam, where the US has a large military base not that far from China. And... The New York Times ran a story that US national security officials were hunting for this code inside networks controlling power grids, communication systems and water supplies that feed military bases in the US and globally. And a congressman described this, uh, this actor, which they, you know, Microsoft called Vault Typhoon, as a ticking time bomb and there's a fear that it, that it might be more widespread than initially believed. So these are areas 
where China is so interested that it's doing the hard yards of hacking into well-defended networks. And so you have to ask yourself the question, what if the Chinese security services controlled these networks through compelled vendors? By proxy. By proxy. Okay, so so that's step the two. first. That's the. <laughs> I mean, that's step. that's a big job in and of itself. Exactly. So step two is um, is what I call red team. You know, Captain Obvious can identify the risks in sensitive locations, but in other cases, the risk is less clear. And for that, you need to set a thief to catch a thief. Uh, what could a team of specialists do if they owned a system identified in step one? If, like the Chinese government, they could call up the vendor and say, "Hey, do you mind if we give you this to put in that?" in that network of yours. People who have experience in intelligence operations, who understand how they work, cybersecurity folk, maybe military planning folk, people who are experts in the relevant technology that you're looking at. And this is a real world test because all intelligence operations cost time and money and some opportunities are going to be more scalable and effective. So, you know, Chinese made cameras and drones in sensitive locations. That's concerning. But crippling supply chains through ship-to-shore cranes, that might be really devastating. So the third step, we've got audit, we've got red team, and the third one is regulate. Once you've decided that something is a particular problem, then you need to work out what you're going to do about it. You need to decide how you're going to regulate it, and you could ban it in some parts of a network. You could ban government procurement use, or you could do a general ban or you could insist that companies using this uh, technology take techn- technical measures to mitigate. So I mentioned the cranes. In some parts of the US that use their PMC cranes, they use Swiss software. So you don't have that problem. You don't have Chinese software. And you might say, well, you can have that kit in you know, sector A, but in B and C you need to put more trusted vendors so you have redundancy arrangements. Or you could, like the UK, uh, through their infrastructure centre, have a real focus on public education. I think the last thing is to, you need to talk about is common international standards that embed democratic digital norms into the technical specifications for AI products and services. Now, it's not the full solution, but if you define the kind of products you want entering your market, you you nip it in the bud and you don't have to then have the friction of ripping stuff out and picking fights. Yeah, look, I mean, that that is true. I think that's a really interesting point. Standards is quite an interesting debate in and of itself in the sense that uh, standards is perhaps an area that governments have vacated over the course of perhaps the last five to ten years. But equally, uh, I think what you end up with with standards is that sometimes you can have technical standards to which compliance is, for which I, I suppose compliance is achievable, um, and yet that won't necessarily prevent the behaviours. So yeah, you could meet the compliance standards and then do the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And equally, the forums in which those standards are uh, determined is is sort of a question as well, uh, whether that's in the UN or in ISO or yeah. other sort of standards bodies. Equally, I think public education is one of those things that should be a given regardless rather than something that you might do as an option, I would argue, quite strongly that it's something we should be doing I think it's the first no, no matter what happens yeah. uh, in terms of policy but all of that is very interesting so so we need to do essentially the the kind of regulate as the step three and common international standards is one of the is part of that regulation so not just domestic but but international as well yeah it's a big focus for the the US and also 
US interactions with the EU, which is actually quite encouraging. Okay, so, so, so three-step process, audit, red team and regulate. The two-sentence takeaway, Simeon? Right, this. I guess what it will say on the back of my car is the democracies need to think harder about AI-enabled technology in our digital ecosystems, but we shouldn't overreact. Our approach to regulation should be anxious but selective. Excellent. Anxious but selective. I think that is a good uh, note perhaps to leave it on. Simeon, it's always a privilege to, to have a conversation with you about these issues, particularly given your depth of experience and the recent research that you've gone into on our behalf. So thank you. In a, in a later time, I'd love to have you back to talk about generative AI specifically mm. and perhaps a, a, a more in-depth conversation about Great. where that is taking us because I think that's a fascinating conversation. Um, we'd be all ears. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks, Simeon. Up next, David Rowe speaks to Dr. Samantha Hoffman and Lily Lee about the metaverse and China. They discuss Beijing's approach to the metaverse and the potential national security risks associated with it and how these risks can be addressed. Welcome back, everyone. I'm David Rowe. Now, the metaverse. For most people, if you're anything like me, you probably think of the metaverse, you think of gamers, and you think of Mark Zuckerberg's very big bet with Facebook. Who knew that China was getting into the metaverse in a big way? There's actually a lot going on in this space. And to join me to talk about it, I've got Lily Lee, Doctoral Fellow in International Security Studies at the Fletcher School at Tufts University, who is doing some work with Aspie. And I've got Samantha Hoffman, a Senior Fellow at Aspie and my valued colleague here. Folks, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, David. So Sam, I might just start with you. Let's uh, go to the basics. Describe what the metaverse is for us. The metaverse is a very difficult concept to, to even clearly define because different people, different companies, governments all have slightly different definitions of, of this concept. But if you sort of uh, strip that away, we're essentially talking about the merging of real, uh, real world and digital world spaces. And we're talking about technologies that include uh, virtual reality and augmented reality and extended or mixed reality technologies. And uh, Lily, perhaps you can follow up on that by just talking a little bit about the technologies. Presumably, there's quite a lot of computation required here, processing, these sorts of things. It's, uh, it must be a, a lot of technology involved. Can you just tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah. So the fundamental technologies that would also support um, the technology, including immersive AR, VR, or mixed reality experiences. Sam, back to you. Tell us a little bit about what the metaverse does. Like, I mean, how is it being used at the moment? What value can it bring to uh, users? What's it for? So the, the technology, I think it's useful to talk about the technologies involved first, because when we talk about virtual, augmented, extended reality technologies, their technologies are already in use. And the applications for these technologies are taking place across a wide range of industries. Those are something like architecture, education, you know, gaming, uh, but then they have applications in, in things like healthcare, logistics, uh, manufacturing, and retail. So the metaverse itself as a concept, you can think about it, its applications in, in retail. You can think about its applications in the delivery of public services. But then where it starts to get a little bit concerning is that the metaverse also has, if you're looking at the Chinese context, the metaverse is seen as something that's government-led. 
And when you're talking about a concept that's government led that carries unique sort of national security implications, but it also carries a lot of positive implications for economic development, at least that's the way that the party state is starting to frame that concept. Yeah, we might come back to the national security implications in a moment, but um, Lily, to you, there's been a lot of talk about what the metaverse might be capable of. Obviously, uh, as I mentioned before, Facebook uh, changed its name to Meta. There was a lot of expectation, a lot of hype built around it. I think I've heard uh, predictions that the metaverse, the virtual economy could actually end up being larger uh, in terms of you know productivity than the real world economy, uh, for instance. How much of this is real? How much of it is hype? And how would you describe the sort of trajectory that we're on now in terms of take up of the metaverse and its technologies? I think China has been spending so lots of money and resource on this. And I got a quote from this is a member of Chinese Academies of Engineering, Zhang Ping. He's a professor and stated that, quote unquote, the metaverse spans critical domains, including the nationals, politics, economic, society, culture, law, ideology, cyber sovereignties, and tech standards. So that actually upholds a profound significance for the futures of the industry and social development, especially in China. And I might just interject there and, and say that, you know, what, what that means to, to Lily and I as, as we're looking at this topic in, in our current research is that the metaverse, it might not be something that is completely real right now. It's this abstract concept that a lot of different uh, stakeholders are trying to compete to participate in. But really, the technologies involved are real. And then you've got these real policy objectives around this concept. And over time, the technology will develop to start to and, and start to shape itself around those needs that are being articulated. And that's what we're seeing with China is that a very clear set of, I mean, you know, varying across provinces, which Lily will be happy to talk about later, but very sort of clear sets of, of ideas about what this can be for, for China's future. And, and we're seeing that outside of China as well with people like Mark Zuckerberg. Okay, so Lily, could you explain how Beijing currently views the metaverse? Like, I mean, what, what's its ambition uh, with the metaverse? What does it hope to achieve? And how is that different from, say, the, uh, the way other countries are approaching it? So China's approach to the metaverse goes beyond just a catchphrase as the nation sets substantial standards for the applications of the technology. And over seven provincial governments and authorities in 17 cities, including major urban centers like Beijing, Shanghai, Wuhan, have issued development plans focused on the metaverse. And for example, Shanghai is the first local government to issue policies that incorporate the metaverse. And this is reflected in the release of the 14th five-year plan for the development of the electronic information industry. The plan focuses on enhancing fundamental core technology capabilities within the metaverse and advancing innovative terminals for better interactions, creating systematic virtual content, and exploring various industry applications. Also, the Global Metaverse Conference was held last year in Shanghai too. And during the conference, the integrations of the metaverse and the urban development was emphasized. Another example would be the Beijing Municipal Government, which released its two years metaverse innovation and development plan 
2022-2024. The initiative asks all the districts to follow the Web3 Innovation Plan and aim at propelling metaverse-related industry and positions Beijing as a model city in the digital economic landscape. And another example will be the first, the new first-tier cities such as Wuhan also plan to provide subsidiaries up to 2 million yen for a metaverse research platform and projects to build over 100 key metaverse enterprise by 2025, as outlined in its implementation plan for promoting innovation development in the metaverse industry in Wuhan. So all this surge of local governments into metaverse aligned with the national push to promote the technological innovation and digital economic. The party central committee and the state council attach great importance to develop the virtual reality industry. The 14th five-year plan for national economic and social development of the People's Republic of China has outlined the long-range goal for the 20. 35, including virtual reality and augmented reality as a key industry with a digital economic. And quote unquote, it proposed a comprehensive digital transformation to drive changes in production methods, lifestyles, governments, and transitions. And this kind of transformations is expected to foster a new industry, new forms of business, and new models to enhance the growth of new economic engines. Okay, Sam, perhaps to you, what Lily's just described there obviously sounds very top-down, very government-heavy as an approach, which I suppose shouldn't be uh, surprising. But to what extent are we concerned that Beijing's approach to the metaverse will involve characteristics that we would think of as troubling, like uh, excessive control, like surveillance, those sorts of uh, things that we, we, we tend to associate the CCP with when it comes to technology. How concerned are we about that? I think it's an issue that we should be concerned about. In, in, but because we're talking about somewhat future concept, it also uh, provides us a lot of opportunities to intervene and set the guardrails that are needed in order to ensure that this concept as it evolves, uh, evolves in a way that at least we can't control what happens within China, but is, is, is safe for our society in Australia and, and elsewhere. So my concerns mainly are across areas like not, not only uh, sort of traditional national security, but thinking about the impact in the information domain. That's part of what, what Lily and I are exploring in an upcoming project. And, and so the, the, the real issue that I'm looking at the very this very moment is standard setting in, in this area and what that means, because what we've seen across a number of other technologies, surveillance technologies, things like facial recognition technologies, you start to see lots of PRC companies participating along with PRC research institutes and in developing national standards for how these technologies are supposed to work. And, you know, the standard setting is taking place at that R&D level. And then those standards can be exported as those technologies are exported and go global. And if China's leading in these markets, then, then those technologies will be the ones that are also going global. So how do you ensure that those standards also are, as those technologies go global, aren't uh, interfering with, with aspects of human rights? You know, with things like facial recognition technologies, you might be talking about like the built-in Uyghur facial recognition capabilities that, that a number of these companies have in their facial recognition technologies. The same would, would go for anything like virtual reality, augmented reality technologies. What are, what are those risks? We need to understand what those risks are, identify them and understand how they're being 
you know, potentially spread globally. So that's, that's one thing. And, and another would, would just be the national security implications. The more that virtual and real worlds mix, you know, the more effective things like information operations could, could become. And these are really abstract concepts right now, but they're things that we need to be thinking about. And um, again, going back to your question about what's what's real now versus what's hype, the problem when you're talking about a lot of these new and emerging technologies is that we need to take them seriously, assuming that they might succeed in order to develop the effective you know, guardrails or policy responses to them. And that's the real the real issue I see with you know, sort of dealing with China in this space is that we know we know how China approaches technology. We know that those approaches are different from the way that we approach technology in liberal democracies, or at least hope to. And and so I think that you know it, it means that we need to be thinking more clearly about what the risks are, even if those risks are uh, requiring a bit of imagination, if, if that makes sense. So Sam, you've touched on the national security implications of the metaverse. Can you just Tell us a little bit more uh, in terms of a couple of the practical examples of the sorts of things you're worried about. Sure. So I think the issue really is, is that the more, if, if we assume that the metaverse becomes more of a, of a reality in our day-to-day lives and real and sort of virtual worlds are blended more successfully, and you consider that in the context of information campaigns where it becomes more and more difficult for users to understand uh, what is real versus what is fake. And technology is making that more complicated because say things like generative artificial intelligence, like you know, deep fake images uh, becoming more realistic over time makes it harder to, to distinguish between real and fake. Now imagine that sort of applied in the metaverse where things like uh, virtual reality and, and mixed reality technologies and the data coming from those are helping advance brain research in like very positive ways in some cases. But that same research can have national security applications where the more you understand the way people make decisions and think, the better you can influence them and more successfully conduct information operations. So, you know, requires a bit of imagination again because the metaverse is it's a both a here and now thing and it's a future thing but if you think about it in the context of this being a state-led project in china those issues are very real and very concerning is there anything that particularly the united states can do in terms of export controls presumably the technology whether it's chips or gpus or you know various sorts of things that are largely designed in the us perhaps say manufactured in taiwan or somewhere else is there something that the rest of the world can do if it becomes sufficiently concerned about the way that uh, beijing means to use the metaverse uh, in order to sort of you know stifle their ability to uh, to develop the technology I think export controls, um, my general view is, I mean, obviously they help deal with national security problems, but the complexities of this, I mean, we're also talking about research and investment in research. So some of the cases that we're looking at, you're looking at research investment and collaborations that are on topics that that aren't related to national security, that wouldn't normally be caught up in national security reviews, but then ultimately have have that impact. And so I think that the the issue, it's, it's very hard to, it's very hard to regulate. Um, so, you know, export controls are one potential solution, but then how do you manage making sure that we allow great research to take place and for those research to, collaborations to include Chinese researchers, but also 
deal with the fact that the state seeks to leverage that research for alternate means. And those are questions that we have across a number of issues, not just the, the metaverse, but those are the kinds of problems that we need to be able to solve or come up with a workable solution in order to deal with the challenges that the metaverse presents. So those same sorts of issues that we're dealing with with now across a number of tech areas, the the solutions, though, aren't, aren't clear. Perhaps just a, a final one for you, Lily, and uh, Sam, also feel free to jump in. Where is all of this sort of headed over, say, the next 10 to 20 years? We talked about hype before, but I mean, if if you were to to look forward into another decade or two, I mean, where do you likely see the the metaverse sort of positioned as as a global phenomenon then? From my perspective, I think China is spending millions of dollars on the metaverse. It's more focusing on trying to have digital transformations and digital economics. So either the local governments or central governments of China, they are trying to promote this technological innovations and to trying to go adherent with the digital economic transformations, which is stated in its 14th five years plan of national economic development plan. And I think just adding to that, you can go way back in time for any sort of technology that is now used regularly in our lives today and think that when they were first concepts, they were they were just that, they were concepts. And over time, technology is developed and improves and is applied in ways that it becomes sort of a natural part of our everyday lives. But, you know, 20, 20 or so years ago, mobile phones weren't weren't that common and they are now. So um, it, it's just one of these things that I think we, we look at it and we see, well, it's a fu- future concept. It may not be a thing that becomes much, but if you look at the way that tech has evolved, well, it's on an upward trajectory most of the time. And so, um, you know, with China, I think China is really great at establishing what its strategic need is and what the strategic priority is with particular technologies or types of technologies. And then understanding how the party can both sort of mitigate the risks associated with those and create benefits for itself out of those. And in in the same was true if you look at things like smart city solutions in China, you know, this is just sort of another iteration of of those those concepts. It's just the, the sort of future development of those same concepts. So, you know, I, I tend to think that in 20 or so years, you'll see a lot of what we're talking about today being somehow, you know, whether whether it's in the exact form as it's envisioned or not, being somehow a part of everyday life. And that's why we have to think about it now. I mean, obviously, I know there are skeptics about uh, Meta's big bet on the metaverse, but if a company uh, as successful as uh, they are decided it was worth uh, investing in to the extent that they did, there's uh, clearly got to be something in it. Yeah, and tons of companies are investing in you know various sort of versions of the metaverse or or aspects of the metaverse. Um, you know whether it's the technology or the you know broader concept, and that tells you that that's where you know things are things are sort of headed and or could be headed. Okay, so Lily and Sam, thank you so much for your time. We're very much looking forward to uh, seeing the research that you're working on in this area. It's going to be fascinating. Uh, Until then, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.